Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Rambling with Ryu. I'm Bean. And I'm Nancy. And today we're going to be talking about parenting with a spinal cord injury. We're talking to one of my really good friends and special guest, Brittany Noonzig. So welcome, Brittany, to our podcast. We're happy to have you here today. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Um, so we're just going to jump right into it. Uh, we'll just get you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to be where you are. All right. I currently uh, am married with two kids. Um, I had a spinal cord injury when I was 13 um, and I was snowmobiling. So I'm just going to tell you guys sort of how that happened because everybody's always curious. I had just moved to a small town in northern Alberta, Peace River, Grimshaw area. They're really close together. So they're kind of like interchangeable. Um, And so I lived in Grimshaw and I had just started a new school there. And one of the big activities in the wintertime was snowmobiling. So I'd been in the school for about three months and a whole bunch of the boys who were 14 at the time that I was friends with were going to go snowmobiling. And I got invited to go by this group of boys. There were uh, going to be six of us going. And I asked my mom if I could go. And she, of course, said no, because we were from we were originally from there and then we had moved away for a while, but it wasn't, we didn't snowmobile. We didn't ATV or anything like that much. So it was kind of scary for her to just let her 13 year old go off with 14 year old boys without like parental supervision. But I was pretty persistent that, you know, I needed to make friends. This was normal in, you know, Northern Alberta. And so after probably half an hour of begging her, she said that it was okay if I go, but only in this really close place to town, which we used to call the drainage ditch. Uh, And so that's where they said I could go. My parents said I could go. And then when I got there, all of the people that were in the group that were going snowmobiling decided to go out to an acreage instead, which was probably a 15 minute snowmobile uh, ride to this acreage and then go in some of these hills that were in the valley. And I knew that was probably not something my mom would want me to do, considering that she had a hard time with me going snowmobiling at all. But I was 13 and I just wanted to be part of the group, right? I didn't want to be like, oh, I can't go. So I figured it'll be okay and I'll just go. And it was probably around 4 p.m. because we got out of school at like 3, uh, 3.05. And by the time I got home and asked my mom and got there, we started heading out at around four. So we got to the acreage where we uh, were planning to go, um, maybe at like 4.20. And it was December 2nd. So it was kind of getting dark, but it wasn't really dark yet. So we were planning to just snowmobile for a little while because we didn't want to be in the dark. And a bunch of the boys had like hockey practice and things like that. So they had to be back at around five. So we headed out, went kind of a, a little bit away from this boy's acreage and started snowmobiling on these hills. And I remember feeling scared, like I was on a roller coaster or something, because I'd never really snowmobiled at all, not even like with a parent. And so it was a little bit scary for me just being on a snowmobile, let alone being like in these hills and stuff. So that's the feeling that I remember. And that's one of the things that it stays with me all the time. When I get that feeling, I know it's that feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't really remember much from the accident. But from what I'm told, we were snowmobiling and then everybody decided to head back. And 
one of the boys named Brandon, he took the lead with the snowmobile he was on and just started leading everybody back. And they got to like the fence line just before you kind of head back into the acreages and were waiting for us. And they were waiting and waiting. Um, and I was on a snowmobile with a boy named Blake and we just weren't coming. So they kind of got worried. They thought maybe he got lost or something. So they turned around to look for us and he said they, they looked for, you know, 15, 20 minutes and we were all together, like in a pretty small group. So we weren't really far away from each other. Like we weren't snowmobiling, you know, mm-hmm. far distances from each other. So they really started to get worried because they're like, where did they go? And then they started to turn off all of their engines because they were trying to hear where we were. And then when they didn't hear an engine at all, they really got worried Um, And so they started walking around these hills trying to find us. And Brandon, one of the boys, he saw a reflection down. It was, it's like a hill that kind of just drops off into a cliff and goes into a forest. And he saw a reflection down there. So he was like, oh my God, I hope that's not them. But he walked down there and it, it was us. So what he thinks happened and, and what he's pretty sure happened is that there's three hills right in a row and There's two that are pretty shallow and then this third one that just drops off and then there's like a big bush at the bottom with trees and stuff. And Mm -hmm. Brandon and Blake used to snowmobile out there all the time. And he said the in between the second and third hill, it would sort of fill up with like snow drifts. So you could kind of like kind of make a jump off of the second hill and plop down on this snow drift and it was Mm -hmm. kind of fun. So he thought that Blake thought we were on the first hill and not actually on the second hill. So he thought he was jumping off of the second hill onto this snowdrift, but he was actually jumping off this third hill that just dropped off into this forest. And so uh, we were at the bottom of that hill. The snowmobile was upside down. Uh, I was on the bottom. We had broken trees and I was on the ground on the bottom. Blake was on top of me and the snowmobile was on top of both of us. Oh my goodness. And so that's how they found us. Blake didn't really look too hurt because he just, the snowmobile hit his chest. But what actually happened was he broke a rib that punctured his lung. So he was actually dying and nobody knew. My, I wasn't wearing a helmet. So um, Blake's helmet hit my face. So my face was really bloody. My mm-hmm. eyes were all black. Um, I looked really hurt. And because I was complaining that I couldn't feel my legs, they were pretty sure that I was paralyzed. So they were really, they thought I was the the kind of the worst one. Mm -hmm. Um, So a couple of the kids kind of just went like they were in shock. Two of the boys that were more, I guess, mature, they kind of jumped into action. One of them went to get help. And the first house that the boy whose name was Corey went to, the people thought it was a prank. And so they, they refused to call 911. And so I think it took about an hour around 45 minutes to an hour for him to convince this lady that it wasn't a prank. Oh my goodness. (laughs) That's crazy. Yeah, I know. It's totally crazy. And then it took 45 minutes to an hour for the ambulance to show up because they had to call search and rescue. And uh, because it like we were in the hills and ambulance couldn't get there. They had to, these 14 year old boys had to like cart these uh, first responders to where we were. And so it was, it was a long time before we actually got out of there. And by the time the ambulance and the first responders did show up, Blake, he died because, um, because of his punctured lung and nobody, yeah, like none of the kids knew how to help him or anything. Um, and so 
yeah, that, that's, that's how the accident happened. Um, I don't remember any of that. Mm-hmm. I woke up probably two weeks later uh, in the U of A. And that's when I remember being told for the first time sort of what happened. I ended up with a tear in my aorta, a fractured, like a fracture in my skull at the base of my skull, a fractured eye socket, a dislocated jaw. My nose wasn't broken, but it was sort of like pushed back in my head and eventually like kind of straightened out again. Just the cartilage was kind of compressed. Mm -hmm. And then I broke my T8 vertebrae. uh, And by the time all the swelling and stuff um, kind of was finished, my injury level was T6. So I remember waking up in the hospital and not understanding that I was paralyzed because I have phantom sensation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my legs always feel bent and tingly because that's like the last thing my brain remembers. And it's just like playing over and over in a loop, right? And so um, that's that's always how my legs feel. So I just thought they were asleep and that I could still move them because in my mind, I kind of was moving them, right? right? And so I didn't really realize I was paralyzed until the first time I remember a physio coming to sort of stretch my legs when mm-hmm. I was in like acute care. Mm-hmm. And she lifted my leg up out of the blanket for the first time. And I saw that it was my leg. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, like my mom still remembers. Like she said, you just went white because it was the first time that I really realized I was paralyzed because they kept telling me that, but I was kind of out of it. And mm-hmm. I was just like, I didn't really, I don't even think I really knew what paralyzed meant. Yeah. Like I think as a 13 as a year old, like I, I knew it meant you couldn't move. But I didn't really know anything beyond that. So mm-hmm. I didn't really grasp the whole concept until that happened. And then I was like, oh, this is what paralyzed means. So that's the first time that I really remember realizing like that, oh, this is a big deal. My life is going to be different. So yeah, that's that's how I was paralyzed, which is pretty dramatic. I actually just went back to my accident site a little while ago and honestly didn't realize how how big of an accident it was just mm-hmm. because... My parents didn't really talk about it uh, after, like they knew of the like how I was hurt, but they didn't really talk to the other kids either that were there. It was just such a dra- dramatic thing for yeah. everybody involved that nobody really got together and discussed it. So everybody just kind of had bits and pieces of the story. So it was really interesting to go back and get the whole story from all of the people that were actually there. Wow. So how many years later did you go back? Uh, so it's this December 2nd, it will be 22 years. Wow. Yeah. So pretty, pretty crazy. Yeah. That's an intense story, man. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I'm glad that I got the the story, though, because I didn't have a full picture of it before. And it makes me more grateful for, um, you know, the life that I get to live, because I really realize how lucky I am to be alive, given where I where the accident was. Yeah. Um, and that I literally like broke spruce trees with my back. So. Goodness. Wow. Yeah. So, okay. You're 13 years old, mm-hmm. you know, you're paralyzed now. What does your life look like? Honestly, I, th- I remember as a 13 year old because I was, you know, the biggest thing in my mind was boys and like all that stuff. The first thing that I thought about, and you know, this is crazy to think about as an adult is, you know, am I still going to be able to get a boyfriend? Mm -hmm. Like that is the crazy stuff that you think about when you're 13 and you don't really have perspective on life at all. Like that was all I worried about. And when I was paralyzed at 30, that was one of the first things I thought of too. 
Yeah. Isn't that funny? Yeah. It's so funny how that's like the first thing is connection, right? Like yeah. humans connection is such a big component of feeling like you belong. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was all I cared about. And I was sort of dating, not really dating because I was only 13, but I was, you know, just in that like first little dating stages of mm -hmm. with one of the boys that was actually at, at the accident. His name was Thomas. And he ended up like calling me every single day in the hospital. Like he came to visit mm -hmm. and every day at like 6 PM, like clockwork, he called me uh, and we talked on the phone for like two hours and then we ended up dating for seven years. But that was really all that mattered to me was that Thomas would still think I was attractive and like mm -hmm. all that stuff, which is really strange. And then I really struggled. Like once I got to the Glen Rose with the personal care stuff, like just as a 13 year old, mm -hmm. I totally dissociated from my body that I like the lower half of my body that I couldn't feel. And I just let everybody do all of my personal care for me. Okay. And it was easy to let them because I could pretend that like, I could literally like go to sleep when somebody was helping me go to the bathroom and not even feel it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that was a huge struggle for me. And because my mom had worked in um, long-term care facilities before she mm -hmm. knew how to do um, like bowel routine programs and she knew how to catheterize and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So she stayed in the hospital with me and like, I don't even remember a nurse doing any of that stuff ever for me. Mm -hmm. Like my mom just did it. And so it was a really easy transition to go from just letting her do it at the hospital to letting her do it at home. Yeah. And so it was an interesting time because I was like, you know, trying to still hang out with my friends, but I couldn't even go to the bathroom on my own. Like I couldn't, I couldn't be away from my mom for longer than six hours. Cause I couldn't pee on my own. Mm -hmm. I couldn't, you know, do bowel routine on my own. So my, my mom woke up every morning before she went to work and helped me do that. She helped me get in the shower. Like I couldn't even get dressed by myself. I couldn't put on pants. I couldn't do any of the stuff that you would think that you're supposed to learn in rehab. And they really, in the, in the, um, the ped section, they really, I felt like babied me and gave me credit for really minuscule accomplishments that looking back were not actually that big of accomplishments. And I wish, I kind of wish, I love my mom and she is amazing. And I every day thank, you know, thank her that she did all that stuff for me. Mm -hmm. But I almost wish that I had had a little bit more tough love because I wasted a lot of years not being independent. Mm -hmm. And especially as I got older, like when I started to be like 17, 18, it felt really bad not to be able to pee by myself. Yeah. Like it, my confidence was so low um, that, you know, it just felt awful. Like, you know, what 17 year old wants to go out with their friends and then have to go home to because their mom has to help them go to the bathroom. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, it was so that that I really struggled with after my accident. So then what kind of shifted from there? How did you become independent? What was that? What did that look like? It really it was moving out of the house. I cuz I was I wanted to go to university yeah. and I had planned to move out of the house into an apartment with my boyfriend and um you know, my mom's like, well, I can't follow you to, to Edmonton. Like this isn't going to happen. And she really did sort of push me as I got older that like, it's time for you to start learning this stuff. Mm -hmm. But I would, I would just, you know, the pity party. Oh, poor me. Like you have no idea how hard this is. Mm -hmm. You know, this is what I have to do for the rest of my life and you don't understand. And mm -hmm. so I really, uh, I was sort of 
enveloped in that pity mm-hmm. for myself. Um, and then it, it just culminated in this, you know, you're moving out of the house, you have to do this, like, it's not even a, you know, let's work up to this. It's, it's time you have to do this. Mm-hmm. So my mom, the summer of t- between 2000 or the summer of 2005, um, my mom moved to the city with me and moved in with me for a month. And she said, like, you have a month to learn how to do this stuff on your own. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, nothing like a little pressure, right? <laughs> yeah. to, to make you have to do things that you refuse to do for four years. But yeah, so she moved in with me for a month. And my boyfriend was coming then the like on the the first of the on the first of September. So that's kind of like what it was like, you have to be able to do this stuff before Thomas moves in. And mm-hmm. so I think I learned most of it. Like I had a really hard time transferring on and off the toilet because at the time that was a really big transfer for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was still using like learning to use a sliding board and stuff to get into a shower uh, on my bath bench. So I, I kind of figured out most of the stuff, but I had no confidence at all being alone in a house where I couldn't get myself into my chair if I fell out or anything. So I, I figured out most of the stuff. I was still cathing like on a bed, like I couldn't cath on a toilet or use the technique I use now uh, where I have a zipper in my pants. And um, so I couldn't do any of that stuff. I just still was like on the bed cath. Mm-hmm. So I was still kind of tied to my apartment every four hours, which was kind of hard, but mm-hmm. I figured most of it out. And then I um, got home care just to come in while I was doing that stuff because I was scared to to do it alone yeah. uh, at this point. And I think I had home care for like two weeks. And then I realized, you know, this is really hard to have somebody else in my house that I don't know. Cause I'd been so used to my mom doing it. Mm-hmm. I guess a little bit, sorry, backtrack. Um, part of the reason that I, that I like wanted to get independent or that helped me get independent was when I moved to the city um, I met my friend, Margaret Conquest, who's a quadriplegic, and mm-hmm. she really pushed me to be independent. And just seeing her helped me because I grew up in a really small town, Northern Alberta. There was nobody there in a wheelchair um, that looked like me. Yeah, There were some boys that were in wheelchairs, but there was no women and I couldn't see my life, what my life might look like. So when I moved to the city, I met her. And then I also um, went to the Glen Rose Outpatient Clinic to get some help with you know, how do I become independent? And so they helped with that a lot. Just seeing somebody that looked like me that was a quadriplegic and independent, I was like, okay, I really need to step it up. And then I met one of the doctors at the Glen Rose named Dr. Guthrie. He was really hard on me um, and basically said like, you have way too much ability for what you're allowing yourself to be okay with. So uh, at first I was really angry at him, but I trusted him because he'd seen so many people come through spinal cord injury and kind of knew what I should be capable of. So I trusted those people. So that helped me become independent and, and do it in such a quick amount of time. So yeah, that's how I, that's how I ultimately became independent was just that push to have to do it. uh, And then not wanting to have a stranger take care of me. Like it was just really uncomfortable. And, you know, for some people that's not an option to, to not have, but for me, being a paraplegic, I knew that I did have that option and I wasn't going to, you know, just waste it because I was too scared to be independent, right? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so now you're moving in with your boyfriend. What was that like for you? Like, was there any, like, hesitation, fears with that? 
Uh, yes. And because I was like, I dated him since 13, we never talked about any of like the personal care things. I just didn't talk about it. Like it, I didn't want him to know. I felt like he didn't need to know. And so then when I was moving in with him, it was even more awkward because I still didn't want to talk about it with him, but we were living together. So, mm-hmm. you know, and I kind of feel bad because I'm sure he knew and his mom was a nurse. So I'm, I'm sure she told him a lot of the stuff, mm-hmm. but he didn't talk to me about it. I didn't talk to him about it. So it was almost like this, like we both knew, but we didn't bridge that was like broach that subject ever. Like we just never talked about it, which is kind of uncomfortable. It's like the elephant in the room, right? Mm-hmm. You're like, you know, it's there, but everybody's like, I'm pretending not to notice the elephant in the room. And so that's kind of how it was when we lived together the whole time. Uh, and he was good about it. But like, if I ever like, you know, had an accident or something, I was just like, oh, I'm going to go change my pants. I don't like the ways these are fitting instead of being like, I peed and I have to wash my pants. Like, mm-hmm. so that stuff was really awkward sometimes, but he was really understanding and just one of those people that didn't want to ever make me feel uncomfortable. So he didn't want to talk about something that he probably knew all along because if he didn't want to make me uncomfortable. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, that was, that was a little awkward, but I got pretty comfortable with him. Like when I was doing bowel routine and stuff, I would just like, he would just get up and go sleep on the couch or whatever so that I could, you know, put my suppository in and stuff mm-hmm. without him being there. So that's kind of how we dealt with that kind of stuff. Um, and he did help me a lot with stuff like he would lift me into bed if I was too tired or whatever. So he did a lot of that kind of stuff for me. Um, but it was definitely uncomfortable for a while just because I was still not okay with talking about the things that I had to do every day for personal care, which looking back, I wish I'd been more um, okay with that. But I think I had to go through that experience because in my next relationship, when I met my husband, I was like, I can't, I couldn't, I knew I had to talk about it at the very beginning because I didn't want to live with that awkwardness. Yeah. And that's kind of like, you know, those are the lessons of life, right? We go through these things thinking we're doing things, doing things the right way. We're thinking that we doing things that, you know, this is the way I should be doing it. And then it's always hindsight that you're like, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't have done it that way. But like you've learned so much from that experience, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's all I, all I can do is take that experience and do better next time. So that's what I did in my next relationship. Cause I was like, I knew these things weren't right mm-hmm. in my like first relationship. So I was like, once I met Joe, I just knew that I had to, I had to get these things out of the way at the beginning for my own sanity. Fair enough. Okay. Let's talk about Joe. What yeah, else? let's do it. <laughs> uh, okay. So my boyfriend and I, the, the Thomas that I talked about, we broke up uh, in 2006 roughly. And so I was really scared to date because I had never really dated, you know, like I'd always been with him and he knew me before my accident. Mm -hmm. So that was like, that was really scary for me. And just even like approaching like the opposite sex was really uncomfortable. Like I was just like, oh, this is so weird. And I had a little bit of like confidence issues and stuff. So I had to like kind of tease that out for a while. And I was really lucky that like my sister lived with me and she was, she had lots of friends. Yeah. So she always had people coming into my world. Like I didn't have to go to the bar that often and like talk to people. She would like invite people over and then there would be people that came to our apartment. So that was kind of a nice thing for me because I was in a comfortable spot. Like I knew I could go to the bathroom there, all that stuff. 
Um, and so I was comfortable. And so I met a lot of people that way through my sister. Mm-hmm. So I dated a few people uh, just, you know, here and there that gave me the confidence because then I could see, oh, like people are attracted to me because I wasn't sure because I'd been dating mm-hmm. the same guy for so long. Yeah. Uh, and I I'd never really had put myself out there like that. And in a small town, nobody like hits on you because they know you're dating somebody. So <laughs> it was weird for me at first to find out oh yeah, I like, I actually can attract somebody and I am attractive. And so that built my confidence. Yeah. Um, and then one evening my sister was going to her boyfriend's brother's house and she invited me to go there. And one of Joe's friends, I invited him to go there because they were kind of having a house party. And I was like really tired then. I was like, oh, I don't really want to go. But then I was like, oh, I'll go. So I decided to go and Um, she at the time said, Oh, there's this guy there. His name is Ricky. He's really cute. So you can flirt with him. And so I was like, okay. So I showed up and then my sister never introduced anybody. Like she never said, Oh, this is so-and-so. So So I assumed Joe was Ricky because (laughs) he was the only one that I thought was cute. So I started, so I started talking to Joe and, uh, and then like halfway through the night, I was like, you're right. Like Ricky is so cute. And she's like, um which one are you talking about and then I like pointed and she's like that's Joe not Ricky and now now because Ricky is my husband's best friend uh I'm just I think it's so funny that like she tried to set me up with like my husband's best friend um and I all this whole time thought it was it was him so I I figured out by the middle of the night that I wasn't talking to Ricky I was actually talking to Joe and at at first I could sort of tell like you just get a vibe from people that they're like a little uncomfortable about your wheelchair or you know and so I was talking to him and sort of flirting at first but then he was just like you know I could just see he was a little uncomfortable like he wasn't sure about me so then I just stopped and I was like oh he's you know he's not into me or whatever and then we just started playing we were playing board games Mm -hmm. and we were like talking about politics and religion and like way too many things that you should talk about on like a first meeting with somebody um but yeah so we were doing all of that and by the end of the night um we were getting ready to leave and he said hey can I have your number and I was like really surprised because I didn't even think he liked me Mm -hmm. uh and so I was like sure yeah and then he didn't call me for probably like two months and then just like out of the blue he called me and I was like oh my god Joe called me finally um and maybe it was because now that I like know what his he did for a job like he used to work the rig so he was probably gone a lot yeah so that was probably why uh and he he lived in Camrose at the time which is you know not really close to Edmonton but not super far so but we know where Camrose is in Edmonton <laughs> yeah my hometown oh is it oh yeah yeah, so he lived in Camrose at the time just because he had a house there. Um, he's not from there, but he he rented a house there just because he liked the community better and didn't mm-hmm. want to live in Edmonton. So, so yeah, I think he was just waiting for a time that he was actually in Edmonton. So he called me. We went on a couple of dates, and then we sort of talked like sporadically, but nothing like really intense or anything. And then I was going to Big Valley Jamboree, which is like a big music festival in Camrose. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so uh, I was going with my family and I just decided like to phone him. I hadn't talked to him in probably like two months, but I was like, hey, I'm going to be in Camrose at Big Valley. And he ended up going to Big Valley that same weekend too. So he's like, hey, I'm going too. And so we hung out the entire weekend. He hung out with my family. 
Uh, and it was really that weekend that I was like, mm, this really might be like the guy because it just, he was so awesome with my family. Uh, and so then we started talking really consistently after that. And, mm-hmm. and then he lost one of the jobs that he had and decided to just like come stay with me for a while. And the rest is history because he never left. Uh, so that was like September 2007 when we, you know, he wasn't like, we weren't planning to move in together, but he came and stayed with me and never left. So <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. I have to ask. Uh-huh. Um, so Joe was an able-bodied man. Yep. And so, you know, what was his thought process of dating a girl in a wheelchair? He actually has been really honest with me about like what he thought at the time. And he said his first thought was when he started liking me was like, what are people going to think? Yeah. Um, and you know, that kind of hurt my feelings at first, but I'm Mm -hmm. super glad now that he was honest about all that stuff because it's not helpful for me or other people. If, you know, if, if he wouldn't say like, this is the real stuff that like an able-bodied person thinks about or that he did. Right. Mm -hmm. And so he thought like, he just thought, what are people going to think of me? Like they're going to, you know, think it's weird or what if they like make fun of me or just like those silly thoughts. Right. And he phoned, like he phoned one of his like ex-girlfriends that he was kind of friends with and was like, I think I like really like this girl, but she's in a wheelchair. And he like remembers her saying like, uh, that's like me saying that I am going to date a midget. What would you think about that? And he's like, I don't know. And he's like, I probably think it was weird. And so he like told me all about these conversations. And then when he, when we started dating more seriously and he really liked me, then he started like involving his family and stuff. Like, is this something that I should really do? What Mm -hmm. do you guys think about this? And he said that his family, they loved me and because I I met them and stuff, but they brought up a lot of like, you know, what's going to happen when she ages and like, you know, Mm -hmm. you're not going to be what, like, if you want to have kids, like we are not going to be able to do all this stuff that you might've been able to do with somebody that's able-bodied, like, cause my husband like skied and like all this stuff. And so they really were like kind of bringing up things that like would happen in his future if he decided to stay with me mm-hmm. or that he wouldn't be able to have in his future. And, um, and then eventually, yeah, like he said, it was a hard thing to weigh. And sometimes he would like not call me for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I would be like, what was going on way back then? And he was just honest about it. He was like, I was, I was thinking about like, if this is something that I can really do. And then once he decided basically that like, I like her enough that like, I'm willing to do all of this stuff, then he was all in kind of thing. And so he was like one foot out the door for a little while just because he wasn't sure. Mm-hmm. And then once he like jumped in, it was like, now I'm totally committed. And it was a little scary for me because I ha- still had those thoughts. Like, why does he like me so much? Yeah. Like, why is, you know, because he said, I love you first. And I was just like, I don't get it. Like, you know, he could have anybody. And like, so I still harbored some of those really nasty limiting beliefs mm-hmm. just from, I think, being conditioned in society about what a relationship looks like. Those were, those were his initial thoughts, you know, just, he wasn't sure about it. And basically just a little bit of fear of the unknown, which I think is natural. Oh yeah, for sure. That's totally normal. And even the insecurities that you felt like almost everybody that I've talked to who's been paralyzed or who has, you know, a diagnosis that, 
you know, makes them not able-bodied. Everybody kind of feels the same way. And like, you know, I felt the same way of like, why is he flirting with me? Like, look at all these able-bodied women around. Yeah. Like, why me? And I think that's just a natural way to think because yeah, like you said, we're conditioned to believe that because we have a disability, we're worth less. Yeah. Less than, than the able-bodied population. But yeah, you know, times have changed, we grow, we mature, and we, you know, it takes, sometimes takes years, sometimes takes decades in order to find your true um, confidence, right? Yeah. And to really know what your worth is. Yeah. But I think it's totally normal for anybody to feel that way. Yeah. And I know another thing that I really struggled with, because I was 13 when I was, when I was injured, I didn't really have like a whole lot of experience with like intimacy and like, especially because I dated one guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, that's another thing that I struggled with is like, you know, can I do things, you know, in the intimacy department mm-hmm. that are going to quote unquote, this sounds really bad, but like keep him happy. And like yeah. those, those really weird thoughts that just are, they are natural, but they're also like really debilitating sometimes. Cause that, that I struggled with that for a long time. And I'm super lucky that, um, Joe, anytime I ever brought up something that was like, you know, made me showed that I wasn't confident in that area. Mm-hmm. He always reassured me. And it was like, there are people that go their whole lives with awful like sex lives. So, mm-hmm. and able-bodied or not, we'll figure this out kind of thing. So yeah. I was really lucky in that, in that department. Oh, that's good. That makes me feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, how long did you guys date before you got married? Well, we, we dated for three years before we got married, but we had a kid in between there. So um, <laughs> technically, we lived together for six months before I got pregnant. Okay. Uh, and that was uh, an unexpected pregnancy. I was in the middle of my second year of university. I was on birth control. And it just was like, oh, my God. And I was like scared because I didn't think about becoming pregnant. You know, I wasn't that wasn't like the timing wasn't at all what I was expecting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I always knew that I wanted to be a parent. Like mm-hmm. I growing up, I loved kids. I knew that was sort of like in my vision of like my future of what I thought my life would look like, you know, when you dream as a little kid. Yeah. Uh, and even like as a teenager, like that was like the vision of my future was, you know, husband, kids, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But I didn't know like how or when. And I remember thinking when I was first paralyzed, wondering if that was still possible for my life. Mm -hmm. But nobody really talked to me about like pregnancy. They talked to me about like you can get pregnant, Mm -hmm. but they never really talked to me about like parenting because clearly I was 13 and they just talked to me about like, you know, sexual intercourse because that was, you know, on the radar as a teenager, but not really parenting or, or pregnancy. So I wondered about that, but yeah, so technically we dated for three years before we got married, but we had a kid in between there. So when you found out you were pregnant, you know, take us through the emotions. Like, what did you feel? How did you tell Joe? What was his reaction? Really? It was like terror. It was like so scared um, because I I didn't get my period. And so I was on birth control and like anybody that's on birth control knows that your period is pretty regular. Yeah. So I was like immediately afraid. And then when I took a test, I was like, oh no. And I thought more about what, like, instead of just being like, oh my God, I'm pregnant. I thought more about like my dad, like what, what is he going to think? Cause I had only been dating Joe for a while, a little while. And (laughs) 
um, I was more scared of what other people would think of me, mm-hmm. which is again, weird. Like you would think, you know, more important things, but I wasn't, I was thinking, what are people going to think of me? Yeah. That's just how we're conditioned. Yeah. And I didn't want people to believe that like, I wanted, I was so adamant every time I told anybody that I was like, I was on birth control, that I didn't want it to be like, you know, that I just didn't care about my timing or my life or anything. Yeah. So it was like a really weird, like, you know, my initial thought. Like you had to prove that you were being responsible. Yeah. And I was 21. So I was still kind of like, what are my parents going to think? Like, yeah. instead of like full, feeling like a real, like adult, I still felt like a little kid. <laughs> that was like, I'm going to get in trouble. Like I'm going to be in so much trouble. (laughs) And like, it was really strange. And then when I told Joe, he was like, so excited, like beyond excited, like so excited. And he like called his mom right away was like, Oh my God, Brittany's pregnant. And she was so excited. And so I like, I basked in that for probably like a month. Cause I was like, I know when I tell my family, they're going to be like, what is going on? Um, because it was like the first grandchild for my family and Joe's parents had kind of gone through a similar situation with his sister where she got pregnant at like 22. So Mm -hmm. it didn't matter to them. You know, they'd kind of been through this Yeah. and Joe was 30. Well, he was 29, but he was 30 by the time Jacob was born. So he was old enough, like, you know, um, but I was, you know, still super young and scared. So um, yeah, I basked in the, in the, in the nice, glow of everybody being excited in Joe's family for a while and then decided to like call my parents and tell them uh and I rehearsed probably like an hour like the thing that I was gonna say because instead of like phoning my dad and being like oh I have something to tell you maybe you're not gonna be excited about it but I was just like I I said Joe and I have some exciting news and like I started it that way and as soon as I said that my dad was like oh my God, you're pregnant. And then I was like, yeah, we're excited to share that. And my dad was mad. Like he was really mad. And to make it worse, like Joe, he moved in with me and then he had got laid off from his job. So he was still trying to find a job. So it just looked really bad. Um, And it was Easter almost. And we were going to go up there. He's like, you guys should just stay home for Easter. He's like, don't, don't come home for Easter. And it wasn't that he didn't want me there. It was just like, he needed to process all this stuff because my dad's like that. Like he didn't want to like get mad at Joe. He didn't want to like say anything he regretted. So he was just like, I just need time to process this. Mm -hmm. And so we, we hung out at my house for Easter and didn't go to my parents. And then after the initial shock, like my parents, my parents were super excited because it was the first grandchild for them. And my mom always knew like that I was responsible, that I would Mm be okay no matter what. Mm -hmm. So she trusted that, you know, whatever happened, I'd figure it out. Wow. So how how was the pregnancy? Like, were you considered high risk? You know, what did your doctor say? What kind of symptoms did you have? I definitely was considered high risk. And the things that they they checked, really, they did more ultrasounds. And at the time, I don't think that the process was as involved as it is now when you're um, pregnant, when you're paralyzed. And I think it was just because like there's more people in Edmonton that have gone through this. So they have kind of a better idea. So I went to an obstetrician slash gynecologist that Mm -hmm. worked at the Glen Rose to do like pap smears and things like that for the inpatients. Mm -hmm. So she was my obstetrician and she, I think I had like every two weeks I had an appointment with her 
So she always checked the baby's heart rate and stuff. I had probably four or five ultrasounds, which is a lot more than normal, mm-hmm. um, just to see where the baby was, especially near the end of the pregnancy, like if, if the baby was turning properly, because mm-hmm. she said sometimes when you're sitting down and you don't walk around, you're not like kind of juggling that baby into the right position. Yeah, because gravity helps a lot with turning the baby and getting the baby into position. Yeah, exactly. So they had to sort of make sure that that was happening. Okay. Um, I do remember getting way more bladder infections, which okay. they had to they had to monitor. But other than like increased UTIs <clears throat> and extra monitoring, I don't remember the pregnancy being crazy. Um, I do remember like at the end of the pregnancy not being able to lift myself as well and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it was pretty normal. I had pretty um mild pregnancies other than the other than the UTIs which just totally kind of took off which is Mm -hmm. annoying yeah I don't remember the pregnancy being crazy but definitely considered high risk and then preparing sort of when I was pregnant for the things for the birth was more involved because I'm a T6 Mm -hmm. and I sort of borderline for autonomic dysreflexia so it was a big planning process in order to plan what to do for autonomic dysreflexia, um, which is, I think probably like the biggest concern for anybody that's paralyzed and pregnant and thinking about like which type of birth they want to have. Cause I always thought you had to have a C-section. Like I just assumed that. Mm -hmm. Um, but then I learned you could have a natural birth, but you have to mitigate the risk of the autonomic dysreflexia, no matter what birth option you choose. Okay. And so that was um, more involved. I had to see like a um, anesthesiologist. Mm-hmm. I had to have, I think it's called a pick line. They yeah. plan to have like a, a pick line. in, so they knew my arterial blood pressure instead of just the cuff, which mm-hmm. is like mm-hmm. venous blood pressure, I think. Yeah. Um, and so they had to plan for that kind of stuff, which was kind of scary because they tell you the risks, right? Like if you have really bad autonomic dysreflexia when you're giving birth, like it's life threatening. And so they tell you that stuff. And I'm like, Oh my God, just giving birth is life threatening for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And they said like the risk is really small and we do our best to, you know, make sure that you don't get autonomic dysreflexia. But that was my biggest worry about the nearing the end of the pregnancy, whether I would go into labor and not know it. Uh, and then get autonomic dysreflexia from that and whether I would have to deal with autonomic dysreflexia during the birth. Um, And so I think that's like, I think that's the number one concern for pregnancy uh, with a spinal cord injury. That is really scary. So what did they do to mitigate that risk? So like, just take us through it because I mean, you're the first person we've talked to on this podcast who's actually paralyzed and been pregnant and carried to term and gave birth. Yeah. We want to know all about it. Yeah. I did have a C-section and I made that choice um, because my mom never dilated and I wasn't sure whether I was going to dilate. And I just decided, you know, if I can't really feel the C-section anyway, and it reduces the risk of autonomic dysreflexia because Mm -hmm. they told me that with the C-section, because I would be getting an epidural anyway, that would totally take away the risk for um, autonomic dysreflexia or like greatly reduce the risk. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just chose that uh, as an elective C-section. So what they did during the C-section was they did the pick line so that they could always monitor my blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And then they had like a fast acting blood pressure medication that would 
go in my um, IV. Yeah. I was like trying to think of the word. What is the thing <laughs> that they put in you? So that, that it was like ready to go in my IV if my blood pressure got to a certain point. Right. And then the biggest thing was that they made me get um, an epidural anyway, right? Even though I'm paralyzed because your whole body below your paralysis level still feels everything. Yeah. And so that was a little weird because um, getting the the epidural when you can't feel when your legs are going numb was a really <laughs> weird process. And yeah. honestly, it was not a pleasant one. Like there's something you have to be able to feel when they're putting the needle in that makes it easier for them. Yeah. And I couldn't feel that. And then I couldn't feel when my legs were numb. So they were doing like prick tests and like things like that to check my reflexes. So it took a really long time. Mm -hmm. to get an epidural and mm -hmm. to like prep for the surgery. But yeah, m m the biggest things were the the blood pressure medication ready to go, having an arterial uh, blood pressure reading all the time. And it did mm -hmm. it like every two minutes yeah. during the surgery. Uh, and then having the epidural to just re greatly reduce the risk of it even being an issue. Um, and I know that um, in a couple of my friends that have had natural births mm -hmm. that are a, a, a T6 or above, they tend to give them an epidural too with a natural birth so that you don't have to worry about the autonomic dysreflexia as much because that's considered a medical emergency. So it's really hard to deliver a baby when like somebody's, you know, in a, in a yeah. kind of a medical emergency state. Yeah, when your blood pressure spiked. Exactly. Uh -huh. And yeah. you're, you, it's such a weird feeling that you're like not even concentrating on anything other than your blood pressure and your pounding headache and stuff yeah. like that. So um, mm -hmm. yeah, those were the things that I remember. I do remember my birth experience like being really negative the first one because I was considered high risk I was stuck on a high risk floor mm -hmm. a pregnancy floor and even after the um after the c-section they kept me on the high risk pregnancy floor instead of like moving me down to the the new mother's floor mm -hmm. so um none of the nurses up there knew anything about like breastfeeding or anything like that um and breastfeeding is harder with a spinal cord injury anyway just because the the nerve conduction isn't as good mm -hmm. when you're paralyzed to like all of those feedback things that mm -hmm. happen. I'm not exactly sure how or why, but I just know that it's harder for people um, with spinal cord injuries to breastfeed often. So it was going to be harder for me to breastfeed. Plus, I wasn't getting any direction on how to do it because I was still stuck up on the high risk pregnancy floor for monitoring, mm -hmm. um, which I didn't like at all. I So it was my husband got to spend basically the entire first um, 48 hours with Jacob. Mm -hmm. And that was really weird to me because as a new mom, like I was like, where's my baby? Like I <laughs> didn't even know where like my baby was. Nobody was helping me learn how to breastfeed. They just started mm -hmm. bottle feeding Jacob right away on the floor that my husband was on with him. Okay, And so it was a very like, I felt like I wasn't the driver in this whole thing. Yeah. Whereas now I think in a lot of birth situations, it's totally up to the the mother kind of what happens with the baby. Mm -hmm. um, and that was more what my second experience was like. But the first one was not very comfortable. It just felt like I was a, a patient instead of, you know, a new mom. Fair enough. So then you're taking your baby home. Right. And I mean, that's scary for any parent, whether you're able bodied or not. And so you know, what was that like? Like, you know, when people, when you have to care for a newborn baby who's so fragile and mm -hmm. you're paralyzed and you've had a C-section, 
there's so many things you have to take care of and like worry about where was your headspace and how did you manage to do all of that? Honestly, like the, the biggest fear I had when like it was ready to ready to take Jacob home was that I wouldn't be able to be alone with my own kid. Like I just didn't, I didn't feel comfortable. Like I honestly was like not even that like comfortable lifting myself around Mm -hmm. on my own. And now I had to do it with, you know, a little baby. Mm -hmm. So during the, during the pregnancy, we sort of planned a little bit for me to be able to get comfortable with doing all of the parenting things. So we planned for Joe to take six months of parental leave. So he did that. My mom planned to come for a little while. His mom planned to come for a little while, Mm -hmm. but we also did a lot of research on like what what we might want to put in place. And the research that we did wasn't like amazing. And some of the people that we talked to just suggested getting a nanny. So that was like initially what I, what my plan was like that I was going to get a nanny and it was going to be, you know, that's how I was going to feel most comfortable. And even if the nanny was there and I did most of the stuff, I still wanted somebody around. Yeah. And so that was like, that was pretty much my plan. Like, and I, you know, it didn't really like push it or anything, but that's sort of what in my head was going to happen. That when Joe was done with his six months of parental leave, we were going to hire a nanny. She was going to like help me feel comfortable being a mom and all that stuff. And then the six month timeline rolled around and Joe was like, you don't need a nanny. Like you do not need a nanny and we're not getting a nanny. And I'm, I was pissed. I was really mad at the time. Like I was like, you are not supporting me at all. But now I think of, Uh, like how hard that decision must have been for him because I can only imagine if I were the able-bodied parent thinking I have to leave my six-month-old with a you know a person that's in a wheelchair and I'm not even sure like as the person in the wheelchair how I'm going to do stuff and so it must have taken a lot of courage for him to be like I trust my wife like I trust we weren't married then but I trust her and I trust in her ability abilities Mm -hmm. Um, Cause I didn't even trust in my own abilities. Like I was like, I don't know if I can take care of this kid. Like this is crazy. And yet he was comfortable enough to be like, okay, I'm going to go to work and you know, I'm going to trust that you're not going to drop my kid or, you know, he's going to choke and you're not going to be able to save him. Like those were the things that went through my head. Like, I don't know if I can do that or if I can get him off the ground or just, I would see all of the things that other parents did. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do that because I am paralyzed from the chest down, my core function is not that strong. Like I have pretty good lateral, like lateral core support, I guess, like Mm -hmm. where I can go side to side. But if I get out in front of me at all, like with my arms, Mm -hmm. then I don't really have that much core support. So I was nervous just about lifting the baby anywhere. And I was like, what if I drop the baby? What if all Mm -hmm. of these things that go, that were going through my head, just made me really nervous. So that was like, I was not probably not in like the best headspace when I first came home because I was terrified for this six months to end. And I was terrified for my mom to go home. I was terrified for Joe's mom to go home. And eventually you just have to like rip off the bandaid. And when Joe refused to get a nanny, I was really mad, Mm -hmm. but also kind of like, it was that push that I needed to be like, okay, like I'll be okay. Yeah, I see a recurring theme in your life here. <laughs> that I have to be pushed. Yeah, I know. 
Yeah. I'm always that person. I, I don't like, you know, I'm not one of those people that flounders once I've been pushed, but people often have to push me into things that I'm like, I can't do that. Yeah. Well, I think like Joe just saw so much potential in you. And I think yeah. in that six months, for six months, he saw you do these things without yeah. any help. Right. And I think your fear is totally valid. I mean, I'm scared just listening to you tell the story. <laughs> yeah. What would you do with a newborn baby? They're so fragile, right? Okay, so that leads into my next question. So what kind of adaptations did you have to make? Like, how did you take care of a toddler? How did you take care of a newborn baby with equipment that's made for able-bodied people? Um, so I was like so naive when I was pregnant that when we started planning for that kind of stuff, we just were like, oh, we'll just go to, you know, Babies Are Us. And like, I literally didn't even think about, you know, the fact that there probably wouldn't be any wheelchair accessible parenting items. So we just went and that's when I was like, my heart sank. Like I still remember being so excited to go look at stuff Mm -hmm. and then realizing like none of this stuff can work for me. Like I can't get under it. It's too high or it's Mm -hmm. too low or whatever. Right. So I was really sad for a little while, but then Joe was just like, you know, really how much stuff do you need for a baby? Like he reminded me how little stuff that like my parents or his parents had. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, they're really, even though there's all of these bells and whistles, there really is only a few important things. So I like made a list of the things that were super important for like taking care of a baby or getting around and they were bathing. So I wanted to be able to bathe Jacob independently. I wanted to be able to get him into a crib that would work for me. I wanted a change table that would work for me. I wanted to be able to lift him off the floor when he got old enough and I needed to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be able to get him in and out of the car and go places with him. And really those were like, that seems really basic, but that's really all you need for like to take care of a baby. So I set out trying to like modify or think of how I would do that in all of those situations. And so for bathing, I just got like an infant bath, but because I couldn't put it in the tub, I put it on my bath bench. Um, and so I would just sort of like take my bath bench out of the tub and I would set it in the middle of the bathroom. I would put it on there, mm-hmm. I'd like to put the baby bath on there. And then I would, this, it used to take me so long because I used to use like a, like a, a juice jug or something to fill the baby bath up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I would put Jacob on that. Um, Oh, another really important thing was getting around with the baby in like the in the apartment or whatever because I lived in the apartment at the time. And um so I got a I got a nursing pillow, like a really soft one. Mm-hmm. And so I always just had the baby when he was really little just laying sort of in the little hollow in the nursing pillow. Mm-hmm. So that was that was another one of the things that was really important. So I the nursing pillow seemed to work for that and I kind of like played around with stuffies and dolls because I was like a baby is rel-, like I looked at like my old measurements like how tall I was and stuff yeah. to see like how big a baby might be and be like oh this you know this stuffy sort of fits in this little hollow. Um and so I did that kind of stuff. And then yeah, the bathing thing, I put the the bath on the on my bath bench and then I would put him in it cuz it was a little bit like it was basically the same level as like the wheel, the top of my wheel on my wheelchair. And so mm-hmm. I was able to like lean my elbow on my wheel because I have like not that good a balance mm-hmm. and then like lift him into the tub. Okay. And then I also used the sink, like the kitchen sink quite a bit, mm-hmm. which was, you know, a good level for me. And then the crib, I knew that I wanted a crib that the door slid open sideways. 
and one that I could wheel under. And luckily, uh, I had told Joe's mom about that. Mm -hmm. And her brother-in-law just happened to be like a carpenter. And he's like, amazing, like, amazing carpenter. So Mm -hmm. she told him about it. And then he phoned me like right away and was like, I want to do this for you. Mm -hmm. And so I just basically told him like, I want a crib door that opens sideways that slides open sideways. Mm -hmm. That was all I told him. He figured out like crib regulations, like (laughs) everything. He did ask me how high I wanted it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then yeah, I think like two months before Jacob was born, he came and dropped it off. And it was like, it blew my mind. It was like the nicest crib I'd ever seen. Um, And so I was lucky that way. And then the change table, I knew I wanted to be able to wheel under it. So I was like, I got to get something that I can wheel under. And most of the change tables, they're like cabinets almost that you can't wheel under them. So I was like, this won't work for me. And so I I had like, my mom had an office desk at her house that worked like perfectly like it was just a big one of those big corner ones yeah and so I was like well this works really well and then Joe's cousin she was selling like her office desk so we took that and I literally just set it up like in the living room like as an office with the computer on it and then I just put like a change pad on it when I needed to change Jacob (laughs) because our apartment was really small too like we lived he his crib was in our room yeah and then the yeah the the um desk was in the living room um, with the change pad on it if I needed it. So that, that worked okay. And then lifting Jacob off the floor. So when he was about like three months old, I was like, okay, pretty soon he's going to need to be on the floor and crawling and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So I was really racking my brain. Like, how am I going to get him on and off the floor? And I started researching like harnesses online. And I Mm -hmm. found a lady out of the States that makes harnesses for, um, adults with developmental disabilities that live in group homes. Um, that need care and that, you know, if they're going for a walk, you know, and they might run out in traffic or something. So there, she makes adult harnesses. And so I contacted her and I said my, this situation, I was like, I have a newborn baby and I'm in a wheelchair and I need something to be able to get them off the ground. And your five point harness looks like something that would support the baby's torso and everything. And so she was like, yep, just give me all the measurements. So I gave her measurements. And she made a harness that was adjustable to about age 18 months. Um, And then, yeah, she sent it to me and it was all straps. So it was really a little awkward to use because Mm -hmm. it was literally just like a climbing harness, like you would wear if you were like, you know, going uh, climbing or something. Mm -hmm. So it was a little awkward to put on Mm -hmm. Jacob, but um, that's what I used for a little while. Jacob was really mobile, really young. So like he was for sure crawling by six months and by like seven or eight months, he was already like lifting himself up onto my wheelchair. Mm -hmm. So I didn't, I only used the harness maybe like a handful of times before he was able to start like pulling himself up on my wheelchair and getting high enough that I could get my hands under his armpits. And Mm -hmm. at the time I kept my armrests on my wheelchair. So they were kind of higher up and I would be able to put like lift him put my hands under his armpits, put my elbows on the armrest and then like use it as like a lever kind of to get him up Mm -hmm. on my lap. And Mm -hmm. then really quickly, he learned how to climb up completely on his own on my lap. That's what I did for that. And then getting Jacob in the car, I just found the lightest car seat that I could infant car seat because they're pretty heavy in general. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. I found the lightest one that I could 
And then I didn't put the car seat base in because normally now like you put the base in and it's always buckled in and then you just click it in with the infant car seat. Mm -hmm. Um, But I read all the instructions and it says you can buckle the car seat in just without the base. So I found a light one. I always kept it in the car. And then I would take Jacob out in a baby carrier, like a sling thing on my chest. Okay. Um, And then I would put him in the car seat and then I would buckle the car seat in. So those were like, basically like that seems really basic, but those were the things that were important to me for being able to take care of Jacob on my own. And then as he got older, I learned how to put him in the jolly jumper and I learned how to get him in and out of the swing. And Mm -hmm. um, it was mostly just a matter of learning how to lift a child with one arm, (laughs) uh, which is really hard to describe sometimes. And really like, I I did it. I used to do it in public a few times and people would look at me like, oh my God, you're going to drop the kid. But (laughs) you got used to sort of like grabbing, you know, the, I got grabbed Jacob under his armpit and leaned him on my forearm and then sort of like tipped him upside down and then would like lift him up in a quick like thing. But uh, that was the scariest part is just realizing that like I, regardless of whether I might, you know, potentially drop my child, if I want to be an independent parent, I, I have to try yeah. and your kids learn so fast. And like, I've never dropped, I've never dropped either of my children. <laughs> so, Good. you know, it was always successful, but that was the scariest part, right? Is just, you're not really sure how yeah. to do it. And you have to try with a, like a live human being. You can't just like <laughs> practice on dolls for six months before you're comfortable, right? Like you have to eventually graduate to the thing that's alive that you don't want to hurt. <laughs> so... <laughs> We've always heard that, like, you know, kids, kids who are born to parents with disabilities kind of adapt faster and they um, change their behavior to fit the need of the parent. Do you find that was what happened with your kids? Yes, 100%. And it's awkward to me when I go, like, I have nieces and nephews, and I tried picking up my nephew the way I used to pick up my kids. And they, he was just sitting there, like, because he's so used to up you know, like just lifting his arms up and getting picked up that way. Whereas my kids, they kind of like, when they knew I was picking them up, they would lean into my arm, right? They knew where, what to do, even at like six or eight months old, they knew. Mm -hmm. And so it's really strange to me and kind of amazing at the same time, how (laughs) intuitive like the human body is and just kids, they learn so fast what they have to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And Jacob knew, my kids knew that they didn't, when we went out in public, they didn't leave like a certain length, you know, away from my wheelchair. They just didn't. I tried leash. I almost leash trained Jamie because she was like, she used to get a little farther ahead, but I put the leash on her a few times. She hated it so much that I was like, if you get this far, I'm going to put the leash back on. So (laughs) they, they knew really early on that like, I can't chase after them. Um, the way, you know, like Mm -hmm. grandma can or whatever. And they would act accordingly with whoever they were with. Nancy, do you know any of the science behind that of why kids are like that? Uh, no, <laughs> I think I think it's just like human nature and we are built to adapt, right? The brain is an amazing thing that uh, is very plastic and will meet the demands of the environment, right? It's almost survival. Yeah. yeah, I find it fascinating. It is amazing. It really is. Yeah. So then, okay, you've talked about Jamie a little bit. So how long after Jacob was did Jamie come along? So um, Jacob was born in 2008 and I was in my second year of university. So after he was born, I took a year off from university Mm -hmm. uh, and then I went back 
he was born in October. So I actually went back in September. So uh, not quite, he was 10 months. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I I started back at university and I wanted to finish my uh, teaching degree because I was in the middle of like a bachelor of education. Mm -hmm. So I went back when he was 10 months and then I finished my degree in, I think the next three years. Yeah. So I went back in 2009. Actually, I finished it in two years because I I graduated in 2011. So I I graduated uh, from university and then we decided to start trying for Jamie after that because we had gotten married uh, after I finished university. So I finished university in May. We went and got married and then we started trying for Jamie. Uh, And it was not as easy to get pregnant with Jamie as it was with Jacob. (laughs) So it's almost like when you want something to happen, it's like doesn't happen. (laughs) We tried for eight months and then I finally got pregnant um, with Jamie. So I got pregnant in 2012 with Jamie okay. and then she was born um, in September. So maybe I got pregnant and I'm like trying to count back nine months. My math is terrible. Yeah, that was in January. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, January. I thought it was the beginning of, of 2012. So then, yeah, so then she was born in um, September of 2012 and Jacob was almost four because he turned four in October. Okay. So what was your second pregnancy like? It was really similar to the first one, except um, the bladder infections were way worse. Um, I remember getting like bladder infections often with Jacob, but the bladder infections with Jamie were just crazy. And my obstetrician at the time, she was kind of on holidays a lot. So when I saw her, she would knew knew I had a bladder infection. She would treat me for it, but she didn't know how ongoing the infections were because I was Mm -hmm. kind of seeing my family doctor at the same time too. And then near the end of my pregnancy, I saw another obstetrician and she said like UTIs are really um, bad for a really high risk factor for um, premature births. So Mm -hmm. I was like, oh man. So then she put me on um, like a prophylactic antibiotic so that I would not get any more UTIs during the pregnancy. But at that that point, I think it was too late because a couple of weeks later, I actually went into labor with Jamie. Oh. which I was always afraid of. That was my biggest fear is that yeah. I would go into labor and not know it. Yeah. But um, I can always feel like I'm T6 and I can't feel like my skin of my stomach or anything. And I can't feel like most of my back or anything. But for some reason, I can feel inside really well. Mm-hmm. Like I have bladder sensation and I could feel like the baby's kick and all that stuff. Oh. So um, I knew something was wrong because like I could feel the contractions, but I couldn't feel the pain of them, right. just the pre- the pressure. Like it was mm-hmm. like insanely, like so, it felt like so much pressure in my abdomen. Yeah. So I was like, something is wrong. And um, Joe was like, I'm sure it's just like Braxton Hicks or whatever, but mm-hmm. I waited it out for like, you know, a good four hours. And I was like, this is not going away. And I kept checking my blood pressure and it wasn't like crazy high, but it was higher than what I normally would have. Okay. And so I was like, something's weird. So I convinced him to go to the hospital with me. And when we got there, um, they checked me and they were like, you're definitely in labor. So they decided to just do a C-section that, that day. Like my regular doctor wasn't there. Nobody that had sort of been the, through like pregnancy planning with me and the, like the birth planning with mm-hmm. me were there. Cause it was just, you know, it was in the middle of the night. And so I actually kind of liked that experience because I wasn't 
they didn't have time to sort of like lump me into this high risk, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. They just sort of did what they would normally do with any person that came in, Mm -hmm. uh, that came in, uh, that was in labor. And so the, the person, the obstetrician that I saw, he said, I'm not, I've never given an epidural to somebody with a spinal cord injury before. He said, there's something you can get. I can't remember what it's called, but it gives you like a really bad headache for like days after if Mm -hmm. I do it wrong. And he was really worried about that. So he was like, can I just put you under general anesthetic for your C-section? And I actually liked that so much better because Mm -hmm. it was such a more simple process than Mm -hmm. having the epidural. And so they took me in, they put me under, and then they gave me like a shot of adrenaline or something because they woke me up as soon as Jamie was born. Like I was like totally awake. And then they just, they said, she's not breathing uh, as well as we would like. So we're going to take her off, take her away and put her on a CPAP. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how early was she? Mm -hmm. Because you said you went to labor early. Oh yeah. She was five weeks premature. Okay. So, and normally kids, it's, it's weird. They said, Some kids at five weeks premature can go home. Like they Mm -hmm. can't really tell why some kids just come out totally ready to go home. um, And some don't. So the problem with Jamie, like she was really a good weight. Like she was seven pounds. She was, you know, healthy and everything. She just had that tiny little bit of a breathing problem, which they took her off the CPAP within like 12 hours. Mm -hmm. I think she just had fluid. And then she just didn't have that sucking reflex yet. So um, Mm -hmm. some babies, when they're, that early they just don't suck and -hmm. so they can't eat right so she had to Mm -hmm. stay in the NICU for I think it was four weeks to get tube fed until she developed that reflex or that it kicked in or whatever Mm -hmm. yeah and that was really hard because nothing in the NICU for parents is wheelchair accessible like the parent Mm -hmm. quarters so most parents can stay with their children and they came out like because I was I was leaving the the acute care or whatever, like the pregnancy floor to mm-hmm. go to the NICU. And then I was getting ready to like pack up my stuff and go over to the parents quarters for um, the NICU. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the doctors like pulled me aside and said, I'm sorry, you're not going to be able to stay. And I was like, why? Like, why not? And I didn't even think that they wouldn't have a wheelchair accessible, mm-hmm. like, you know, apartment mm-hmm. for people that are parents that are in wheelchairs. Hmm. And he was like, we just don't, they're in the old nurses, uh, like where the nurses used to stay when they would work nights and stuff. And Mm -hmm. he said, they're not wheelchair accessible. He's like, there's not even an elevator in there. (sighs) And so I was really upset and I had to like, I cried the whole way home. Yeah. So I spent, yeah, four weeks away from, away from Jamie, 20 days. I think that's exactly the number. It was 20 days. So I spent that long away from Jamie I went every morning, like I got up and went at like 7am and, you know, came home at like 10pm, which was also really hard because then I had to like, Joe was working because he didn't take any time off for Jamie. So he was working. I had my in-laws, but I was away from Jacob. He couldn't come to the hospital because they wouldn't allow like they, a few visits, but they wouldn't allow kids in all the time. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. I was like away from Jacob, away from Jamie. Like it was, it was a really like trying time. Um, but yeah, it's really surprising that they don't have stuff set up for more, more set up for parents with disabilities. Like they just kind of, yeah. I don't know if it's like an assumption that they are, they don't have kids or if it's just, you know, we're a little behind the times. 
I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I went last year to fertility clinics to see about freezing my eggs. And, you know, I talked to so many doctors, so many specialists, internists, anesthetists, OBGYN, family medicine, internists, so many people. And each and every single one of them said, we have no experience with a woman of a spine with a spinal cord injury giving birth. And, yeah. you know, it's just like, it's that it is that assumption that people with disabilities aren't going to get educations. They aren't going to have a job. They aren't going to have a family. Yeah. Right. And it's, we still live in that stigma, even though it's 2020. Well, I think too, just cause you guys are in the minority as well though. Right. So anytime yeah. you're in the minority, there's that, you know, a little bit of marginalization and just ignorance. Yeah. Yeah. Even some of the doctors, like the, the, like the anesthesiologists and stuff, they knew about autonomic dysreflexia. They had a very good understanding of like neurological conditions when it comes to any kind of surgery, like C-sections included. Mm -hmm. So I was really happy that that knowledge was there, but like just with the general practitioners and some of the pediatricians that came in when I was in the hospital, like one of them was like, uh, after I had the epidural, like he came in and he was like, Oh, that's so nice that you, you probably didn't even need to get an epidural because you can't feel anyway. Like, how awesome is that? And he was like a doctor. I was like, get this guy out of my room because yeah. I'm freaky, right? He didn't know that like yeah, people that are paralyzed still have reflexes and sensation. Mm-hmm. It's just not attached to their brain anymore. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that was really scary that there's a real discrepancy in the amount of knowledge that the healthcare professionals have. Yeah. Even in like, you know, the hospital setting. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, that was a little scary. Yeah. Cause that's when you realize it's a specialty, right? It's, yeah. it's, you have to really learn in depth that neuro side of things. Yeah. Oh, it totally is a specialty. And I don't think that, you know, just general practitioners get that. No, they don't. And like, you know, honestly, what people learn in med school about spinal cord injuries or about neuro and stuff is they just skim the kind of the skim the surface. Yeah. Right. Not a lot of people go into the depth of it. Even neurologists who study neuro don't have a very good grasp on (laughs) what life is like with a condition. Exactly. Hopefully that'll change with people like us speaking out and educating the world about neuroplasticity and what life is like with a spinal cord injury. Yeah, exactly. And doing things like this, like just information that people don't generally have, because this information is amazing for people with spinal cord injuries, but it's also amazing for those healthcare professionals that are going to be working with people with spinal cord injuries, because this is education for them too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, like what advice can you give to parents or soon to be parents or people who are wanting to become parents who are living with a disability or who have a partner with a disability? I think my biggest thing that I wish I had known before or that I wish I believed before was that no parents, disability or not, know what they're doing. <laughs> like nobody is going to have it all figured out. Like there are those few people that maybe babysat a lot or had really younger siblings, mm-hmm. but no person knows exactly what their parenting is going to look like. Mm-hmm. And that's okay because you can't figure everything out by planning it in your head. You literally have to just do it. And um, as much as like I did plan those important things, um, those essential sort of things that you would need to take care of a baby, the other things just came as I learned, you know, how comfortable I was with my child, what their abilities were going to be, because every kid's different. Like Jamie could not even crawl at 11 months old. Like 
So I had to learn how to do a lot more with getting her, lifting her off the ground and ways to do that or getting her in swings and stuff Mm -hmm. than Jacob because Jacob was really mobile. Like he just was. And so what your parenting looks like is going to be unique to you and it's going to be different. I think you have to, to not let your fears get the best of, you know, your potential because there's fears out there. Like I still have fears. Like if my child chokes now, Mm-hmm. I probably couldn't save my 11 year old. Like I could try, but there's certain things that I will never be able to do as a parent. Mm-hmm. And if I let my fears of those instances take over, then my, I would totally have squashed the potential that I have as a mom and the beautiful life that I've built with my kids mm-hmm. and the amazing opportunity that they have to have a mom with a disability or to have a parent with a disability for that matter. Like I just think for me, it's the kids that are born to parents with disabilities that are going to grow up and make the world more inclusive. And if, you know, we stop ourselves from having kids because we're too afraid or we're not sure how, what it's going to look like, or we let others stop us mm-hmm. because of things that they might say, um, then we're really missing an opportunity to make the world a better place. And that might sound really like grandiose, but I truly believe it. I believe that in order for inclusion to really be genuine mm-hmm. and authentic it has to come from somebody that's lived that experience their whole life and yeah. those are the kids that have parents with disabilities like it's not even going to be a thought in Jacob's mind mm-hmm. ever when he grows up that something shouldn't be wheelchair accessible like that's he just automatically is going to assume that like he notices that now mm-hmm. like kids that are two years old sometimes notice that when they have a mom in a wheelchair yeah and so mm-hmm. I think it's a I think it's amazing really the opportunities that parents with disabilities can provide. Yeah. So what does your look life look like now? How old are your kids and what are you up to? What are they up to? My son is almost 12 because his birthday's in October. And my daughter is almost eight because her birthday's in September. Jacob's going into grade seven. Jamie's going into grade three. I did finish my teaching degree and I started teaching uh, a couple of years ago. So I, I'm just a substitute teacher in the Parkland School Division I just started a YouTube channel trying to give people advice on all of the things I've learned living in a wheelchair over the last 22 years. Uh, I have a blog doing the same thing. Uh, and it's been nice now that my kids are older to be able to to not have so much to do with them and to be able to sort of look around at the things that I might be able to contribute to the world other than just being a mom, which is wonderful and I love it. But uh, it's so nice to be able to to kind of contribute Um, to the community that I belong to and that I feel is in need of some good, not like necessarily role models, but people out there like yourselves that are just sharing information to help make their lives easier. So it's nice Mm -hmm. to be able to do that. That's awesome. So where can we find this blog? What's your YouTube channel called? And how can people uh, get a hold of you? Everything is under Empowered Para. So my YouTube channel is Empowered Para. My blog is EmpoweredPara.com. And you can find me on Facebook there too. Um, my Instagram is longer. It's BNoonzig underscore Empowered Para. So I might change that just because people aren't always looking. But I'm pretty sure it'll come up if you if you type in Empowered Para. So everything's under, yeah, Empowered Para name. Yeah, and we'll list that in the description below this, this episode. Yeah. And are you open to having people reach out to you if they have questions or if they have, um, you know, comments or anything? Yes, 100%. I I love to just be able to talk to people. And even if it's like not me giving them advice, just having somebody to, to 
talk to about their experience, I'm, I'm really open to that. So. Cool. Well, honestly, thank you so much for being so open and honest and sharing your story and really giving us and our listeners a different perspective of parenting and pregnancy with a disability. It really opened my eyes to a lot of things that I didn't know about or think about. No, you're welcome. It was my pleasure. Well, thank you, Brittany, so much for joining us. Um, I'm sure we'll have you on again. And yeah, thank you so much for all of the information that you've given us and for being so open and honest. And yeah, we'll uh, see you guys in a couple of weeks on our next episode of Rambling with Ryu.